tell us about empathy, what you set out to do and where you're at right now and, and why you think it's so important. Empathy is the friend you wish you had when you lose a loved one. That's what we want it to be. And that's what we're building. We understand it's a very um, lonely moment in life. By definition, you just lost a loved one. And we want to help with the full range of grief and estate needs. And we don't think you can decouple the two. We strongly believe that grief is made hard by logistics. And logistics are made so much harder by grief. So you have to come up with one comprehensive solution that will be both your headspace for grief, but also your turbo tax for estate settlement. Because you eventually want to save people time and money and headaches. And if we do that, then we take this inescapable part of life and we humanize it. We make loss a little bit less hard. Hi, I'm Ron Gura. I'm co-founder and CEO at Empathy. And my core value is empathy. What a surprise. It is a pleasure to introduce to Invested Ron Gura, co-founder and CEO of Empathy.com. Ron is a tech entrepreneur who has brought his love for developing empowering products to startups and major international corporations. As Senior Vice President at WeWork, Ron started and oversaw a global R&D center of 250 team members responsible for the tools and systems that helped the company scale operationally. Previously, Ron served as an entrepreneur in residence right here at Olive. Prior to that, Ron served as a product director and general manager at eBay, leading its business incubation organization. Ron joined eBay as a result of the 2011 acquisition of the Gifts Project, a social commerce startup where he served as co-founder and CEO. Ron, welcome to Invested. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you back in the Olive office. By the way, I couldn't remember. They asked me, how do we know each other? Mm. By the look on your face, you're also not sure how we know each other. I remember the first meeting. It was definitely here on the boulevard. And you were definitely with that iconic scarf. Uh, <laughs> on Rothschild but, Boulevard. So it must be in the winter. But I don't know, you know, um, who technically made the introduction. I'm going to guess it's Eden and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look up this. Uh, I'm going to look this up later. You still have your calendar from back then? Yeah, I can do it. Yeah. Wow, that's impressive. Okay, so we started here on on the boulevard, and uh, you joined. You know, before we get that, what what would you say are like kind of the core values broadly that that animate you? You know, use the word empathy not just as a brand, but as a as a core value. But I do think it has a lot of virtues. It's not just about compassion or um, about kindness. I think it's about putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And, and that translation of empathy, I wear very comfortably because it's also about product. It's also about uh, talent acquisition. But what about product and talent acquisition has to do with empathy? So the basic of every product manager, every designer, is to put yourself in the customer shoes. Like say you're working on a, on a web page, on a mobile app design, uh, even writing content for a, uh, the CTA on a button. What would the consumer feel? What would the consumer understand? What type of concerns they might have at this stage? What information is lacking? So it, 
the, the ability to imitate someone else's um, thought process is very productive and very um, helpful for sales, for hiring, for design, for product management, but eventually it's a very simple human ability. Not everybody has that uh, trait of being able to kind of put themselves in somebody else's shoes. You know, the rabbis famously say that one should not judge their fellow uh, until you've been in their place. And most of us haven't been in their, their, their our fellow's place or our friend's place. How do you develop the ability to, you know, what you call empathy in, in your own interpretation to to put yourself in somebody else's shoes to the point you can develop products for them, you understand what they're thinking when you recruit them. Where does it come from? I think, to be honest, it's very self-serving. As a, as a young, uh, short child, uh, <laughs> you use uh, different things that you um, come across to get what you want. So as uh, the youngest brother or the shortest kid in, uh, in the class, or so you understand like you need to find uh, your angle in order to really uh, influence the situation. A lot of people take that to humor and, and that's how they get attention or get what they want eventually if they can't have most, the most force or the most uh, uh, influence. Uh, I think if I'm overanalyzing it, that as a, as a young child, I understood I can anticipate what's in it for someone or what would motivate them in a, of course, completely different jargon. It would not be about us talking about conducting business, but it would be like, oh, what he really wants is to be the goalkeeper or what this kid really wants is just to be included. It doesn't really matter if he's getting, if he's getting the blue collar or not or, or whatever that is. Uh, I think it was self-serving. It was, I so need it was a to tool. Be, it was a tool I need to improve in order to uh, have more influence about the situation. So is it a value or a tool? I think empathy is a value and you break it down. It has uh, components, tools, uh, and virtues. Um, Does it have vices ever also? What's that? Does it have vices ever also? Like, you know, if it's a tool and you can kind of figure out what people want, you, you can manipulate people too, right? Yeah, I guess in a way the sales-oriented approach of putting yourself in someone else's shoes is about manipulation. But the manipulation, of course, should be authentic in a way that it's only playing with the weights and not with the essence. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, by the way. Um, I've always thought that you were very authentic uh, as a person. We'll, we'll come to talk about that more when we talk about I'll take uh, it. Thank empathy. Um, but that line of what... You, you know, you called weights rather than essence or degree versus uh, what the foundational principle is, is a hard line. And by the way, it's getting harder, I think, as, as the word evolves, world evolves because there's so much more polarization out there. So how do you figure out, like, when you're uh, putting yourself in somebody else's shoe, shoes and, and trying to get at something, whether you've crossed the line? Is it just the degree, you know, the weights or... I think there's a very clear red line. If you need to remember what was said, or if you keep notes and to say, oh, that's, what, that's the number I gave them, or that was, that was uh, the thing I, I said, then it's, the essence was not true. Oh, that's, a great, that's a great heuristic. Because then 
it's basically um, it's not authentic anymore. You're just um, messing with something to to create a, re- a new reality. And I think a lot of uh, early time uh, early stage founders, who by definition, are doing sales across the board, overstep that uh, that line. And I actually want to ask you: you meet tons of early stage uh, founders. Um, some of them are better communicators than others, but you also get to judge them in a way in the kind of test of time and see a year later, not if they succeeded in doing what they said, but if they meant it. So how do you judge it when someone says, I'm going to build this thing, but I'm never going to compromise on X, Y, and Z, or I'm going to get this executive to join me because I'm going to promise them X, Y, Z. So when you see it, you, you want the founder to, to be successful in that transaction, but where's your line? First of all, it's really difficult. That's the first thing. And by the way, I thought I was interviewing you, not, not, not the opposite. But okay, it's a conversation. The element of trust is so critical in building a startup, is so critical, I think, in the investor-entrepreneur relationships that um, you know when somebody oversteps the line in what I would call the heat of the moment, perhaps because it's kind of such a roller coaster of these startups versus I missed something in their personality when I first invested. Look, you don't have endless amounts of time to make investment decisions. Uh, and I consider myself a reasonably good early judge of character. Uh, but we don't get it right all the time. We get it wrong sometimes. And this is a, a pressurized environment. And people also... Uh, perform differently when the pressure uh, hits up. There's a famous line from the rabbis where he says, we don't judge a person because so, which means in his cup or, or when he's drunk, because so in, in his pocket, meaning when he's under financial stress or because so in his anger when he's angry. I actually think you actually learn a lot in those circumstances and that we can judge people because when they're under extreme pressure, uh, oftentimes the true person uh, comes out, the kind of true essence of the person comes out. And, uh, you know, one slip-up is one thing. Multiple slip-ups is a, is a fraying of trust. And uh, that ultimately goes, goes sideways. Um, but, you know, interestingly, you, you, you're an empathy guy. And now your company's called Empathy, which we'll come back to you. But your first company was called The Gifts Project, which is also something empathetic. People wanting to give gifts to others. Where did the idea for The Gifts Project come from? And, and why did you start with gifts? So for the gifts project, it was very uh, straightforward. Um, my uh, sister-in-law was living in um, California at the time with uh, my brother, and she was learning more about the, let's call it westernized gifting culture, wedding showers and baby registries and a lot of things we just don't have here at all. And she came up with um, an early version of the need to do uh, a many-to-one versus just many-to-many. And that was basically a core, uh, an early version of what later became group gifting. And I do feel like gifting is a beautiful, ancient um it's a it's a beautiful thing that has been around since since uh, the Romans, and it's um, 
It's something that was never unlocked. People. So, why, why is gifting important? Because it shows customization. It shows uh, you care. Really? Maybe it just shows that I feel obliged to give you a gift. A lot of it is. I think... I mean, that's kind of the whole cultural element. Showers. Really? Right. A shower? Another, another one? Right. Or I got even an engagement present and a wedding present and a baby moon present and a honeymoon present. I mean, really? There's a good point there. I feel like... But By the way, I'll tell you, when I was getting married, they told me, you know, there's the engagement ring and there's a wedding ring. And then there was this whole thing in the Orthodox Jewish world of New York, which was, you know, and you get a watch from the in-laws and you get a this and you have to give the wife, uh, you know... I looked at this, this is nuts. Like, why is there forced gifting? That doesn't show anything. Especially because financially it becomes uh, a burden. burden. Yeah. And the, the people who make up the benchmarks are uh, incentivized to say you should invest X amount of salaries or, um, you know, Y amount of money. But when you kind of summarize everything I know about gifting into, you know, just maybe one, under, under one minute, I would say there's definitely a, a spectrum with um, maybe a few dimensions here that is about how liquid is it? Is it, is it cash? Is it an Amazon gift card? Is it a gift with a, a return policy? Or is it something DIY that you made? And how personalized uh, it is? Is it something I made? Uh, think, think, think about like the most uh, iconic... Uh, Western visual of gifting. Uh, a young child walks down the stairs, usually in American movie, it's Christmas, and they see the Christmas tree and a lot of gifts, and he opens up the big box, and he sees uh, something that his father handmade for them, for example. That would be the perfect example of a, a scheduled, triggered, personalized surprise gift. You can still take some elements of this, like it's not, it's a gift, but it's not a surprise. It's a gift, but I'm asking you for your size first. It's a gift, but it's actually cash and it will still be a gift. What I've learned in a few years working on this is if you change more than one thing, then the mind does not, just doesn't see this as a gift anymore. Interesting. You can say it's a gift, but it's not just for me. It's a few of us. It's a gift, but I want to tell you I'm buying it to you. But once it's like too many things connected, it's, it's becoming this, like you said, a transaction of, of um, cultures. Now, you sold the business to eBay. It's fair to say it wasn't a great business. Is that fair? Yeah. It was a good idea, but not a great business. Is that? Yeah, we were doing um, nice revenue, but most of it was from eBay. It was a right. million dollar in revenue for early stage, but it was from, uh, I think, 850000 was coming from uh, the acquirer. So G gifting turns out to be a hard business. Like there's been a, a bunch of attempts at this from, you know, gift cards and gift card breakage. I think there was something called like something monkey at some point. Right. Uh, maybe first round capital backed and yeah, karma, karma. There's been, there's been a bunch of these and they turn out not to be great venture backed businesses. Oh, why? Well, I'm still getting, uh, you know, every few months, one of the, uh, venture capitalists that is hearing a gifting pitch with, Hey, I remember a guy that had something. I'll, I'll give him a call. By the way, sometimes from your, partners here at Aleph as well. And uh, it's interesting. I think it's still unlocked. Uh, I will. Uh, you think it's still unlocked or still locked? I mean, it still needs to be unlocked. That's the essence. I think it's a problem. I'm not sure it needs to be solved. Interesting. And as founders, I think we just 
not it's not enough to look for a great problem you need to find something that needs to be solved and ideally there's there's more than one reason why you need to solve it more than financial uh, reasons but it's actually meaningful it's actually moving the needle I think gifting should be messy should be messy yeah you should you should think you should think hard I, I don't think I want it's human to prefer it to be messy right and so for it, it so therefore it shouldn't look for a technological solution for an easy solution as usual you want to take the mundane parts of transacting or shipping or packaging and maybe those you can automate but the thought process of what should Michael appreciate now when he's God forbid sick at home and I want to surprise him um, that should be me thinking hard messy um, and the, the second that's gonna be a, a one-click button it's not gonna be as meaningful to you either because you're gonna know so I, I'm, I am hoping that all these showers and registries would gradually decline in uh, excitement, even though I'm not sure that's the trend. And people will be more authentic about gifting as well. But I don't think it's a problem that needs to be solved right now. That, that's actually a great uh, segue. I'm not such a gifting guy. It's not It's not my thing. Um, and I'm bad at them. My wife would say I'm terrible at them. I forget to give people gifts. We have wedding gifts that I probably haven't given but in she's years. She's probably very good at it. So She's they- excellent at it. You always have to marry the opposite. You and- need a strong average. <laughs> no. Well, in the house, you need a strong average. In the house, you need a strong average. Yeah, I think it's almost fair to say that you've been, and in your in your kind of founding of companies, focused on life events. Right, gifting happens around life events, and now empathy.com or empathy, uh, which is focused on not death, but on some level after death, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to afterlife. By the way, this is not something metaphysical. This is really uh, the real hard messiness. Uh, and complexity and humanity for next of kin dealing with the passing uh, of a loved one. Why are you so drawn to these life events? I think that as humans, we need a common denominator. Like, and what's the biggest common denominator in terms of a human story other than birth and loss? Like, that's the one single thing that is inescapable that we're all going to have and that makes life events including some that most of us will have but not all of us like a wedding or a, uh, our own um, child etc really good stories then really meaningful moments of truth and I think a moment of truth like a birth or a loss a life transition basically has a lot of emotions and that makes it not just very meaningful but also a great story that a lot of people want to take part of. So when we first sat down to talk about empathy on the porch over here, uh, just outside, um, I think you said to me something like, you're probably not going to want to be a part of this because it's dealing with an uh, unpleasant topic. And uh, and by the way, had you come to me about gifts, I would have thought I don't want to have a part of this. But co- trying to help people cope with loss feels like a much better uh, and more important mission Uh, for a company, this really kind of talks to the point you made earlier about stuff that is uh, routine but messy should be automated, but stuff that is uh, authentic or needs to be authentic uh, should be handled in a more human uh, manner. Uh, I think I also said at the time that this is the perfect case for a company. There's a, here I go back to the rabbis again, 
There's only one uh, thing described as it's called in Hebrew chesed shelemet, which is kindness, which is truthful, authentic, which is how you help deal with loss and, and people who pass away because they can't return the favor uh, ever. And so I was immediately uh, taken uh, by this difficult idea. By the way, parenthetically, the other thing Ron obsessed about other than uh, next of kin dealing with loss was elevators, but that's for a different time maybe. Um, so tell us about empathy, what you set out to do uh, and where you're at right now and, and why you think it's so important. Empathy is the friend you wish you had when you lose a loved one. That's what we want it to be. And that's what we're building. We understand it's a very um, lonely moment in life. By definition, you just lost a loved one. And we want to help with the full range of grief and estate needs. And we don't think you can decouple the two. We strongly believe that grief is made hard by logistics. And logistics are made so much harder by grief. So you have to come up with one comprehensive solution that will be both your headspace for grief, but also your turbo tax for estate settlement, because you eventually want to save people time and money and headaches. And if we do that, then we take this inescapable part of life and we humanize it. We make it, we make loss a little bit less hard. It's always going to be hard. You and I, and you know, some of our best friends run companies that are fun and perky. They're pink, they're purple, they're flashy, and they're funny. And I love those companies. Um, we don't get to be that. We get to be the serious, complicated, messy, human, but hopefully extremely empowering brand that is helping you in your most challenging moments when really like you, you, you're basically facing not just the, the terrible loss, but also in a way, for the, for the first time in a long time, you're contemplating your, your own self-mortality. You understand in a way, let's say you lost a parent. Something about us is acknowledging the fact that uh, in many ways we are next. And there's something about that, and God forbid, unnatural loss that is even harder. And in Hebrew has its own words because it's so, so different yeah. than uh, the natural life cycle. So that's what we set out to do. And more you know, painful words. It has more painful words about the unnatural losses of children or siblings, as right. the case may be. Yeah. And in our specific case as a nation, it's also our national uh, pathos. Like right. that's that's who we are, and that's what we do. And um, it's very different than um, Memorial Day, let's say, in many other countries. Um, so take a second and just describe as a empathetic product manager how you went through thinking what could be automated, what needed to be humanated, um, and, and how you kind of couple and decouple at times the grief and the logistics in, in a digital product. I mean, it's a digital product. At the end of the day... Um, they're not equals. So the emotional comes first. And at the end of the day, when you need to choose a brand, it's not, it's not, you know. It's, it's not turbo, it's not turbo probate. Exactly. Yeah. The first thing is acknowledging the situation, uh, building a soothing, 
workflow that is not adding more questions and adding more noise and more colors and more uh, fleshy items to your situation. It's all about taking it down and understanding that things need to be very clear. But at the same time, many people don't want, you know, too much fluff and too much uh, emotional support. They really have, you know, a set of tasks they need to get through in order to re-engage with life. And the biggest help you can be to them is if you can be short, infrequent, and accurate. And it's that broad array of, of needs that is really the challenge from a product standpoint. How do you solve for both? And in a, in a nutshell, I would say you want to take away the paperwork as much as possible, um, pre-field documents, don't ask the same question twice. Uh, just kind of tell me one's approach and leave time for the things that matter the most. Spending time with the family, just doing memorization, um, understanding what needs to happen and, and processing everything. You spent time, highly unusually, before launching the product, um, engaged a brand agency, everything down to the color scheme. You even invented a typeface. My memory is correct, right? I was on the board. We had to approve that. Well, why did you do that? Like you invented a typeface for empathy. Why? I think there are not too many companies um, I would recommend of taking a brand first approach. I think in Tel Aviv, we barely see any of those. Um, I would give our our friends at, at Lemonade, uh, um, a shout out, I don't know, and, and say, I, I view them as a brand first company. I'm not sure that's how Daniel and Shai would describe it. And they definitely have a lot of deep technology. But at the first thing you say is, this is who we are. And the reason you need to do that in, in an area like end of life is because the biggest force in this ecosystem is aversion. The, the stronger than anything else, stronger than a grief, stronger than the paperwork. The reason that most, the vast majority of people don't do estate planning is just trying not to contemplate end of life decisions. Nobody wants to deal with it. Nobody wants to deal with it. Nobody wants to talk afraid, about it. Because they're afraid, because it's painful, because... It's, it's telling you that it doesn't matter. It's like, it's reminding all of us that we're just human mortals and we can't play the game of grief and of greed and 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 um, fear if we remember that um, this is all just for a few more years. Uh, and and it, it's very important to be able to um, um, deny it. It's a great force of human nature, and at the same time, it's a taboo topic, and taboo topics should be broken. Yeah. Every single one of the taboo, ta if you don't speak about the problem, it doesn't mean it's going to go Because people away. suffer in silence from it. They suffer from their grief in silence. They suffer from the logistical hell that is the paperwork, the probate, getting money out of locked bank accounts, probate shutting down nuts, social media. Okay? Probate is crazy. If you Google probate, you're getting like, can I avoid probate? What is probate? Do I really need to go through probate? People hate it. It's, it's just takes another year and it's, it's just a terrible process. If we, you know, you have probably, you know, tons of apps on your phone right now that will 
help you get stuff done. And I can probably choose one out of five apps to, to get a ride back to my office or five apps to get dinner tonight. But at the same time, we're not using all these workflows for such a big moment, big moment in life. Like, think about, break it down. Taxes, technology is great for taxes. Uh, pre-filling forms, great. We do it every day. Um, collaborating with other people on a complicated task, great, terrific. Workflows. And here you have multiple next of kin oftentimes you need to collaborate with. Yeah, siblings yeah. and uh, other family members and lawyers. And so why not? Just because it's a taboo topic and we're not speaking about it, we're not going to leverage all the knowledge and capabilities and workflows that are already out there and couple that, couple those into a, a beneficiary, next of kin oriented, next of kin centric uh, product that can eventually save people time and money. Just to put some numbers in this, how many people die in the United States every day? They would be 10,000, give or take. 10,000 people die uh, a day. By the way, I think uh, a friend of ours at J.P. Morgan told me that J.P. Morgan loses something like 200 employees a day or some crazy number like that. Uh, or maybe it was 200 customers. I can't remember what it was. It was a large number. I think, um, yeah, definitely don't want to recall the wrong number here, but I would say it's closer to 2,000 customers. A day. A day. That would make sense because right. what's the market share for JP Morgan? Let's say 20%, give or take, so yeah. out of the 10,000. That's 2,000 times a day that someone's going to knock on a door and say, you know what? Um, I'm not a customer, but my dad was, and I need to close the bank account, for example. How long does that take normally? It's like 18 months median. 18 months. And, and how much money do you assume is locked in these accounts in the interim period when people are trying to shut down the accounts of somebody who passed away? Oh, they, then they, of course, the averages don't help here right. because it's, it's, it could be um, anything from nothing to millions. But at the end of the day, it's how much money you spend. We speak so much about the cost of living and the, yeah. the, 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 rising, the rising cost of living, but... We hardly speak or give any thought to the cost of dying when it's not a surprise at all that we're going to need that money, not just for the immediate arrangements and the lawyers and uh, processing and moving the house. And it's basically going to be a nice five-digit number that an average American family is going to spend. They don't have that money on average. Like, it's very difficult. How many cell phone accounts do you think Verizon or AT&T needs to shut down a day for people who died. Thousands, I, I would keep it at the same like top of the envelope calculation. Say, let's say Verizon has 25% market share. Um, AT&T, I think, has something like that as well. Give or take 30%, 25%. So it would be something like 3,000 phone calls a day that have no substance, no upsell. Nothing good is going to come out of those conversations. It's going to be, hey... Where's John? Like, no, I told you John's not here. I need the credentials. No, I don't have the credentials. Like, it just, and it's and happening. Technology can help with this, obviously. Instead of this, having a human being answer the phone. This, this call should never happen. Right. And definitely not for 42 vendors on average. So, for example. 42 vendors and accounts need to be shut down per person who passes away. On average, On average. Yeah. They have a lot more, but a lot of those just, you know, people just keep going and it doesn't matter. And, and the next of kin, the people who survive, spend 
What's the average amount of time they spend doing this? 420 hours uh, on winding down the affairs of the loved one. And I'm putting aside anything that is emotional because right. that's, that's just a, yeah. Grief that, has no timeline and it's very different for different people. Now you hired a chief grief officer, uh, David Kessler, who literally wrote the book yeah. uh, on grief. That's an odd decision for a technology company that generally focuses on efficiency. Like, and it's embedded in the app, many of his short podcasts on grief. We, we couldn't be prouder to have a domain expert uh, on grief and loss um, like David uh, taking an active executive role at the company. Um, he literally wrote the books with Kubler-Ross on the, on the stages of grief and finding meaning. And people spend time listening to these podcasts? A lot of time. A lot of our engaged users are spending time uh, basically re-engaging with life in a way and finding purpose and meaning. A lot of that is audio, like you mentioned, but also a lot of it is long form. People have a lot of questions when they lose a loved one. And right next to, uh, you know, using our tools to deactivate accounts or... Um, find out if they deserve money from Social Security or the Veteran Administration or automate another process, they then flip hats, usually different hours, usually at night. And then they read about grief and gender. And they listen to audio about um, uh, grief and guilt. And like people have a lot of questions. Stuff, as we like to call it. A lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. So I want to kind of toggle on this issue of uh, authenticity, humanity, technology, what works to get something, you know, done and, you know, clear my clutter, my paperwork, get that account deactivated. And well, I, I need my headspace and I need some help to, uh, to grieve. So you launched a little service, uh, which was uh, chat GPT or AI, artificial intelligence to write obituaries, right? These little things that people write for their loved ones. And uh, when you called me and told me you were going to do that, I said, oh, this is interesting. It will be a less authentic uh, obituary. And you said something to me fascinating. You said there's a lot of mental overhead in writing an obituary, and maybe if we can lessen that a bit. And so I'm interested in both sides of this, which is what was your thought process in launching AI or chat GPT for uh, obits? Mm -hmm. And the other side of it is, did people actually react and say, oh, thanks for lessening my burden? Or they say, this is not really who my mother or father or, or uncle was. So obituary is a, is a small yet um, meaningful part of the first chapter of winding down someone's affairs. Everything about the immediate arrangements, informing others, the ceremony, uh, the eulogy, the, the, of course, obituary. And... It's, it's really just a portion of what we do and what we look at. But we did notice at our enterprise premium accounts that get uh, professional content writers to help them write the obituary and make sure they're happy with a perfect, uh, ready-to-be-published piece, that what you really need to do is improve the input. And that is really great for AI. AI is really as good, the AI output is as good as the input. If you ask ChatGPT, for example, a simple question, it's not going to be as good uh, as if you're, you're getting a more detailed one. And what makes a good obituary, 
at least in the American format, is making sure you haven't forgot the basics. Like, did he serve in the military? Uh, did he leave anyone behind? Um, did he have any meaningful hobbies? Um, his education, etc. So what we did is we took our regular enterprise offering and we sliced and diced a small part of it and made that as a freebie for everyone to lower the barrier and democratize access to, uh, to grief on that sense. Exactly because what you said, it looks like I need to write an obituary, but many of us, not you, but many of us are not writers. And asking us on one of our hardest days in our lives to now take pen and paper and write the perfect piece that will ideally remember our loved one perfectly is a lot of unneeded pressure right now. We need some guidance. I'm not saying let's outsource this thing. What the AI AI would do is bring you a really nice draft. Really nice draft instead of someone charging you and what do people react to this? about it. Like what do people think about this? You, c- you can look at the reviews for that specific tool. It's great. It's 4.8. People really appreciate that. Uh, it saves them more than anything else um, uh, time and money. It's a, it's a really difficult day. But it's, I do want to make sure that it's decoupled from our obituary tool, sure. which is the in the enterprise offering. This is where uh, an expert content writer is writing one for you. So I want to go back to talk about what you said about uh, earlier empathy and recruiting people. It's part of what helps you in your toolkit. Um, probably working at empathy is not for everybody. You need a certain amount of mental fortitude and, 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 and empathy for, uh, for the clients that you're dealing with and the customers you're dealing with. Who, who comes to work at empathy? Why do they work at empathy? And how do you know if, if they're cut out for this? I think at the... Very early days, like telling the first employee and the second employee that Jan, my, my co-founder and I, want to, to, to work on this mission and this problem domain was indeed challenging. But after like the first 10 people, and definitely now basically 70 strong, it actually becomes uh, a, a great superpower for, for talent acquisition because you have something that is mission-driven by definition. You don't need to take a long minute and explain how is this helping, you know, users at the end of the day, or how is the infrastructure we're building here will help that machine and that back office and eventually will help the consumer or the small medium business. No, it's very straightforward. We help families deal with loss. And at the beginning, it it's, there is... Um, there, there was a challenge kind of refining the messaging. And, and now at this point, it's very rewarding by definition because you see those five-star reviews coming in and you see what people are writing every day. But there's a, is there a certain kind of person who comes to work at Empathy or is it, or can anybody do this now that we help families deal with loss? Yeah, you know, I see people turn up to comfort people who are dealing with loss. Not everybody can speak at these Places. Not everyone knows exactly right. where their place is. It's challenging. No, I would I would definitely set apart our care managers. That's our human uh, centered, uh, human centric uh, call center that have dedicated care managers like your quarterback for loss, and they're helping you with all that everything the app can do for you. You have a twenty four seven 
helpline. And do they can, have a certain background or there's certain licensed kind of social workers? They're all licensed social workers. Yeah. So not anyone can be a licensed social worker. That's right. for sure. But designers, data people, engineers, yes, many of them had a meaningful life event that gave them some perspective. Interesting. Many of them, a lot of the people who reach out to us every day, um, and it's frankly, it's challenging because someone would, you know, write me a long, detailed note, like they would write the CEO next to me. But in this case, it's not going to be about you. I have to work it simply because I love music. They're going to write me. I have to work at empathy because I, you know, lost both of my parents or, or God forbid, a, a child. How many of those do you get a week? Probably 10. 10. I would say I half of them would be care managers. Just suffered loss. Wow. Half of them would be potential care managers. Mm-hmm. But it's you need to read it carefully and you, you need to explain every single prospect, even if they're just not a not even something we're looking for, that it's not a huge coincidence in, in a way. It's not. Like it, it's connecting us to. But at that moment when you lose a loved one, you feel like this is a calling. If there's a if I'm in technology and and this is a, a company that is dealing with that mission, then I, I need to be there. It's very strong. Once you're in the moment, yeah. and I see it with our enterprise clients, when I'm talking to a large employer uh, or when I'm talking to a life insurance carrier and the other person on the line was an executor or his wife is currently being tasked with winding down her dad's affairs, it's a much... Much easier call, but the question, but this is, but this is the whole point. Like eventually, it's gonna happen. It's not about like is he the right customer. It's like is it the right timing. Right. And once they get it, once they get like, oh, if I buy this to my employees at uh, checkout.com, uh, if I buy this for my employees at Guess Jeans, or you know, a few a few brands that recently joined. Um, then I'm helping them bring their whole selves back to work after this meaningful life event. By the way, very similar to what happened with maternity. If you think a decade back. Maternity leave. Yeah. Yeah. Maternity leave and maternity care. Care. So maternity leave would be the time and, and pay. And maternity care, amazing companies like Clio and Maven and others that are building a layer on top. So the employee could really re-engage with work fully. That's needed, not just for, not only for this type of a life transition, but also for this type of a life transition. It's the same. So this is a good transition to uh, the business evolution here, right? Initially, you thought you'd at least start with kind of a business to consumer download in the app store uh, kind of business. Over time, you've transitioned to more what we would call B2B2C, which is your two sets of customers or life insurance companies uh, and then enterprises in, in the HR stack, right? Yeah. Where they have uh, maternity benefits, maternity leave, and now bereavement uh, leave. Take me through that transition from going from, okay, we're going to be a B2C company. To say, hey, we still need to focus on the consumer experience here because they are the consumer of this product and we need to have empathy. But I, I got to go work through life insurance companies some of the biggest in the United States and and enterprises. T- take me through that transition as an entrepreneur and, and what it means for the business and and what are the benefits, for example, life insurance companies are getting out of it. So when, when we got started, we knew this is a very 
uh, broad and blue ocean. We knew there's um, not a single vivid brand in um, offline or online. There's nothing pre-need before uh, loss, estate planning, or at need when you need it. There was nothing financial. There was nothing emotional. It was all open. Like, there was no technology, at least not nothing meaningful, that was at scale and a recognized brand that is handling the end-of-life uh, category. And we did um, launch a direct-to-consumer product, but at the same time, we were having discussions with different enterprise companies in different categories. By the way, as you remember much broader list of categories and industries than the two focused categories we have now of life insurance and large employers. Mm -hmm. We were in discussions and commercial agreements with some of the biggest um, funeral homes uh, in the United States, um, the, the, the top five hospice chains, senior living, flower shops. And the reason is, this is where a lot of the bereaved come to. And, and this is where they need help. When you zoom out eventually on direct-to-consumer, yes or not, yes, yes or not, like doing it or not, it comes to CAC and LTV. Because... Customer acquisition costs and long-term value. Yes. I think when you have an infrequent product, like a Zillow, a TurboTax, an Airbnb, a Casper, uh, Werby Parker, even if it's offline or online, when it's a brand that is infrequent, then it's it's very um, very challenging to do it without a good um, um, CAC LTV ratio. Mm -hmm. And um, unlike Noom or Headspace, nobody wants to be better at bereavement. Nobody wants to be a better executor. Nobody wants to be a better griever. People want to get it over with. Right. So it's infrequent by definition, but also something... I want to get past this already. Exactly. You need it. So it's, it's much closer to a turbo tax on that sense, but even more infrequent than the annual taxation, but 100% addressable. Like It's almost like a vaccination. I got to get this. It hurts, but I got to get through it. In a way. Yeah. In a way, but it's still more process oriented. Yeah, and it takes longer. It's still a relationship, not a yeah. transaction. It's just not, you know, uh, an annual thing um, or, or something I need to do for many years in a row. So eventually, from a business perspective, when you want to make sure you have recurring revenue and not a transactional short-term business, you turn to the places where recently bereaved families go, f go through every day. We call it RBF, Recently Bereaved Family. This, this is the entity we get to empower. This is our client, the family unit, not just the brother or the sister. And the RBF is my client. And the entities that has the most recently bereaved families coming through them are, you know, the life insurance giants and the big employers. And How many they claims the life insurance companies deal with daily? So the top... The top five um, could be even, you know, 600 life, life claims a day. Um, they're talking about hundreds of thousands of, of claims every year. A year. It's a very accurate 
um, number. They know exactly how much they're going to have next year and the year after. Yeah, the statistics work. In the law of large numbers here, the statistics work, yeah. Yeah, think about life, insu life insurance is a very special insurance because um, it's the only one that the policyholder is not the beneficiary. Right. Life insurance is empathy by definition because you're doing it for someone else. It's, there's nothing selfish about life insurance. You do get peace of mind out of it, but you're putting the money for someone else. The person who purchases the life insurance purchases it for somebody else's benefit. They will not benefit right. from this transaction. Right. And this is also how the authorities would look at that money and say, you know what? I'm going to tax you differently because this is not you know, something you're doing for yourself. Everything is baked into the, administ the administrative aspect of this. Like, is there gifting tax? And then is there inheritance tax? And is there um, um, probate and estate tax? Like, this is different country by country and state by state. But at the end of the day, countries like Israel that don't have any of what I just mentioned only do life insurance for a mortgage. Right. C can you... I'm sitting here and I'm asking myself, can you actually, I hope the answer is yes, but I mentioned a more nuanced answer. Can you actually scale the empathy? Like you're getting to large numbers of customers. You've got case managers and technology. Can you actually scale this human spirit of empathy, which is clearly part of the magic of your growth? You're going quickly. So I think the challenge would be uh, alignment on tone and voice mold and scalability of a compassionate care. Because there's a, there are a lot of social workers in the United States right now that are making less than $40,000 a year, less than $50,000 a year, and would want to have a, a very meaningful uh, career trajectory. And the challenge is how do you have a strong back office that is taking away their mundane and helping maximize, let's say they work X amount of hours a day, all of that X about face-to-face -face care and taking away all the research and homework and answers because that will cut the conversation. And that makes them more empathetic over time, you think, in answers for tone and voice? Yes. If I'm having a discussion with you uh, right now and, and supporting you uh, over the phone, and we're really getting to a, a place where, you know, I understand why you're not getting any help from your sister or why is this emotionally hard for you to talk about with the surviving parent or whatnot. And then I need to stop that conversation and go to the government website to check if you really deserve something or what's the exact percent of, if I have all that coming to me and I can send it to you right after the call and say, don't worry about it. Don't take notes. Just focus on this right now. This is just one example how at the end of the day, the uh, quality of care is going to be higher. You know, one of the things you just said now just struck a chord with me. I hadn't thought about it before. So there's this, this is graph. great. I'm going to, we're going to do a product session right after. This is, this is a board meeting in live, but the, you know, there's this graph that's made the rounds for a while. I think it was the American Enterprise Institute who put it out first. And Mark Andreessen has been tweeting it around for the last bunch of days also in which you see that the cost of everything technologically oriented has gone way down and the cost of everything that the government's got its hands on, like education keeps going up and it's bankrupting families, healthcare, education, et cetera. You just made a super interesting observation, which I hadn't thought of, which is we took social 
workers who are underpaid for being kind of the first line of defense for so many critical parts of society. Um, and the job they do is, is is an unbelievable yeoman's effort. And you said, well, they got to go, you know, tick off a bunch of things on what's likely a lousy technology experience government website, which saps their time, their energy, their tone of voice and, and their empathy. And we've automated that. Now, not only that, but they can handle more cases in that way. And it also occurs to me that by private enterprise and empathy.com automating away what the government has not succeeded in doing uh, of their own technology infrastructure, we can increase compensation for a lot of these frontline workers by simply making them more productive and not waiting for the government uh, to do it. And that there's enormous opportunity to grow the economic pie. This is kind of what I've been talking about in my other field of interest, which is this notion I coined called covenantal capitalism, mm -hmm. which is we can grow this pie using innovation and technology. Especially if we get more people to aspire to work in a caring environment, because it's not just about increasing the pie of dollars per employee. It's, it's about creating the incentives and the lagging indicator of a teenager in Alabama right now that is aspiring to become a caregiver, that is aspiring to become a nurse, that is aspiring to work in a hospice and not just be a TikTok influencer. Because that's really the gap, where the gap is right now. And a lot of the aspirations are heavily correlated with the ability to make wealth. There's not a lot of empathy on TikTok. I'd argue no. there's a limited amount of humanity on there also, but maybe that's for a different case. But there could be. Maybe there could be. I'm not sure the medium is well set up for it. But you just talked about this kid in Alabama aspiring to be a frontline care worker. And by the way, being a good, well-paying job with the right mission, et cetera. What, what drives you every day? And what, what gets you out of bed to get after this hard topic, challenging topic? It's, it's not hard for me anymore. It was at the early days. And, you know, I had my, my fair share of loss my, myself. And I, I also know the other founders in the limited ecosystem of end-of-life technology. And I can tell you uh, the one I appreciate more, the ones I, you know, compete with. They're all mission-driven. Like, nobody gets into this line of business if they're not serious about alleviating someone else's pain. And what makes you serious about it? What gets me out of bed very quickly every morning is knowing that if it's, if it's going to be a good day or a bad day, it was a fight worth fighting. It's kind of a one of those things that, you know, when you're truly mission-driven, like, it's okay, even if someone else will beat you to it, as long as it's the right alignment of, of interest and everything we're doing is only to benefit other families. Can I ask you about the personal grief and what drives that? Sure. Look, it's, uh, I don't think a lot of, uh, you know, your listeners are aware, but, um, in addition to my big brother, Eyal, who's also very active in the local ecosystem, uh, we had a, another brother, Amir Zuhnolivrecha, who uh, passed away out of, of cancer um, at an early age. And it impacted everyone, of course, mostly, mostly my mom. And uh, I, I can't say there's 
a single person in the family that wasn't heavily impacted, but she was so obsessed and um, hard at work to create a fun um, house and a good, healthy environment at the house that had to kind of hide the grief and the processing. And I can't, having two daughters myself today, I can't even imagine uh, the, the length and the, the challenges of, of raising two boys by her own um, once uh, Amira has passed. And in many ways, Israel is a good place to lose a loved one. Yeah. Um, if you don't see it on thing, he, he, he put his fingers up to put quotation marks in terms of a, right. a good place, quote there, unquote. Loss can never be good, but I can tell you it's far more taxing in the U.S., literally. Uh, it's, very, it's, it's very challenging. And Israel's a more empathetic society, and it's more used to dealing with it. The density. The density. Uh, you know, of course, religion has an aspect of loss, uh, and, and there's a lot of beautiful things in the Islam and Christianity uh, about loss. I think Judaism is doing an exceptionally good work around loss and the, the culture, the, the customs of Shiva are very, very smart and very, very empowering. And once you study grief, you understand why. But at the end of the day, it's going to be hard. It's going to be emotionally draining. And growing up, I had a lot of questions about loss. And uh, uh, at some point, I even, you know, made my mom ward and, and she took me to a few professionals to see if this is something I can please stop asking questions about. Uh, and eventually at like age 12, I understood nobody really wants to have that conversation with me. So it's not that it's not interesting to me. How come we're all playing this game without talking about there's an end date. Uh, we're building these towers. We're, you know, starting these companies. We're going to school. We're playing these games. And I understood like, it's just not something people are comfortable talking about. And I stopped. It, I never stopped thinking about it, but I stopped talking about it. It was actually when I was here at Aleph, took taking a, a full year, January 1st until January 1st, to think about big topics I care deeply about. When I went back to saying, wait, this is, this is it. This is the single largest consumer sector that is untouched by innovation. Like, what are we talking about here? This and is, we can make a difference. This is completely unspoiled by software. We're talking about what engineers could do all day. We're talking about what design could do. This is it. This is the single largest place, the single largest sector that is, is untouched. Like, if I can bring my knowledge, my experience, and my ability to team up with resources and talent and mush that together, behind a brand-first approach that will first fight the aversion and make this a rewarding place to work, a rewarding product for uh, customers and a positive ROI for clients, then I can't do anything better with my time. So your brother Ayal is also an entrepreneur. Your mom must have done something right. Uh, or very wrong. <laughs> two, two entrepreneurs. What happened in the house? What were they feeding you? Well, um, my mom... Uh, is definitely an amazing uh, entrepreneur. She she ran a, 
a meaningful chain of um, pharmacies back in the 80s in, in Haifa. And while many people think uh, we learned a lot from our uh, dad, who was also a very That's meaningful true. entrepreneur in, in, in the 80s in Israel, we were actually, I didn't grow up with him at all. I, I, I did learn a lot from my mom. Um, and if I have to I highlight one thing is, you know, how you treat clients. Like, and, and it was never... You know, instead of us and instead of family time, but it, the prioritization was clear that, you know, there's a late night call, you pick up the call, you, you take the, you, you know, you take the call and you, you see what the client wants and how can you help. And, you know, we've seen a customer approach from a very early age, thanks to uh, our mother. You got two daughters so far. <laughs> what? Yeah, I, I, what? one of the things I, I uh, probably I was oversecured about when I was with Aleph is not just I'm going to start an end, life, end of life company, it was also I'm going to beat you to it and have more kids than you. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the, the physics here are uh, might going to get in the way, but uh, I'm on it. All right, good, good. Okay, so don't be, don't be worried. I'm not worried and I'm not judgmental either. But what are the values you want your daughters to grow up on? By the way, it's not a physics problem. It's a biology thing, but that's for a whole different conversation. <laughs> but once you say physics, it sounds right. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, nice words I can use to say how I want them to be um, unconditional and, and caring. And eventually what I want them to have and what I want people to say about them, and even selfishly what I want people to say about me when I'm not here is just being a good friend. I would love people to say, you know, during their life and after that my daughters were uh, good friends to the people around them. Before I get to my rapid fire questions, I, I have an observation. You're already doing the rapid questions. No, no. You're answering them short. Okay. Uh, the Gifts Project, there was you. You started Empathy. There's Matan Bar. He started Melio. There's... Uh, Erez Dickman, who is the uh, head of engineering at Lemonade. There's Yon, who's your co-founder. All of you were at the Gifts Project. Did I miss anyone? There's many more uh, good people were there. We were very lucky. And of course, Maya. And Maya. Uh, and, it's a, it's a little bit like the PayPal mafia. We got uh, Danny Friedland, who started Walnut. Walnut. And we, we, just, uh, we were very lucky. And, and Ziv Meltzer, who started Hello Heart. Right. We, we, we had a very smart... Um, it's like the PayPal mafia. I just paying attention to that now. Definitely not as big as the PayPal mafia. Right. I would say it's the Boulevard mafia. Maybe. The Boulevard. But it was like 25, 30 million people. And you were like the first startup to move on into Tel Aviv, onto Rothschild Boulevard, which is now famous. But you were literally the first startup to move on. Uh, what happened at the Gifts Project? I think it was like three of us uh, at the time. I think uh, Face.com and Saluto were basically- Face.com started by Aiden Shochat, my partner, and Saluto. A few weeks or months before us, mm -hmm. here hiding on the boulevard. We didn't make a big deal out of it. It was just uh, a cheap, affordable place to get a nice, uh, <laughs> times vibrant change. office at the time. Um, but whatever, how did all these people go on to do such amazing things? What happened at the Gifts Project? Can't take any credit for was that. Was it the eBay training afterwards and PayPal and C2C payments? Maybe it was the kind of- heavy enterprise culture that we had at eBay that pushed everyone back to startups. Or maybe we just, you know, got lucky and hired, you know, smart, smarter people than us very early. And I think, you know, not, I think we can both agree 
teaming up with Matan and Erez on, on your very first start startup is, you know, that's, that's like a, a Did lightning. you all grow up in Haifa? Yeah. Which is amazing. The amount of entrepreneurs that come out of Haifa is amazing. Everyone thinks Tel Aviv, but it's actually a lot of Haifa people who've come south to Tel Aviv. Especially with Aleph. You look yeah. at... Um, Shai, Winnegar, Lemonade. And Matan, and Yaniv Tros, and Ziv Paz. Ziv Paz. We got a bunch. And Erez. I'm sure there are others. Myself and, and many other of your uh, founders here. Yeah, Ami Daniel. Of course, Ami. There's another one, yeah. So uh, quick rapid-fire questions, and then I'm going to make a loop back to a topic. So number one, what makes you human? What, what makes you vulnerable? My kids. That's fair. So in 100 years, they're going to write the biography of uh, Ron Gura. What will the title be? The X Project. Explain. As you might recall from the official documents, even here at Empathy, it's called the Empathy Project. Right. We had the Gift Project. Right. Who knows what's coming next? Okay. Uh, for for profit or nonprofit, I think um, if it's gonna be a book, it needs to be cheesy, and if it's gonna be cheesy, <laughs> it's gonna have an X Project title. It's funny. I would have titled your book Empathy, but what do I know? Too many. We, we overused it for today. It's overused. Okay. I, I want to circle back to close this out to AI. And I want to play the world forward, you know, five or 10 years and ask you, where do you think human empathy goes in an era of AI? If I get to wear my naive pink rose glasses here, as, and, and, and as, a, as founders, we get to wear these all the time. I would say it's going to be great. Tell me more. I would say a lot of the mundane work, a lot of the financials, a lot of the calculations, and a lot of the research will be done for us. And more of our kids will become artists and caregivers and have compassionate conversations with their friends and loved ones, paint and write songs. There's an embedded assumption in there that harder work or grinding work or mundane work makes people less empathetic. Are you certain that's true? I think how they work and grind their work is correlated with more, um, uh, with less face time with people. Of course, there are a few professions, like psychologists could be very hard at work and in front of people all day. But I think 90% of the job families they work really hard, it means they see, they spend less time with fellow humans. And when you spend less time with fellow humans, you miss a lot of the original AI, which is hand gestures and blinking and, you know, uh, face movements. And, and when you lose sight of that, it's harder to understand what Michael is feeling right now when his, you know, mouth is doing this and his no nose is doing that. And once we're back conversing with one another, spending time in a physical space right next to each other, I think we're going to be more compassionate and we're going to be um, more able, more capable of understanding the other person's needs. I once thought, and with this we'll finish, that uh, when they started talking about like embedded computing, that computing being embedded around, you could kind of get away from like looking at this thing. And so you could pick your head up and see actually 
you know, the eyes of, of other human beings. And that would also be a step forward. And this is just some sort of interim phase in which we've gotten distracted from our humanity. Ron, thank you for joining. I appreciate your doing this. It's fun. So Thanks for having me. Human with me. You can find Empathy on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. That's at Empathy uh, on Twitter. And you can follow Ron, Ron Gura, that's spelled R-O-N-G-U-R-A, on both LinkedIn and Twitter. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us five stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe and tell all your friends to subscribe. Ron, thanks for joining. Thanks, Michael. See you soon. <laughs>